My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with female and female-identified entrepreneurs, founders, co-founders, business owners, and industry gurus. These podcasts speak with women and women-identified individuals across all industries in order to shed light for those just getting into the entrepreneurial game as well as those deeply embedded within it. Histories, current companies, and lessons learned are explored in the conversations I have with these insightful and talented powerhouses. The series is designed to investigate a female and female-identified perspective in what has largely been a male-dominated industry in the USA to date. I look forward to contributing to the national dialogue about the long overdue change of women in American business arenas and in particular entrepreneurial roles. You can contact me via my media company website, wild.agency, that's W-I-L-D-E dot agency, or my personal website, patriciacathleen.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is your host, Patricia, and today I am sitting down with Brianna McDonald. Brianna is president of Karatsu Forum in the Northwest region. Welcome, Brianna. Well, hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to dive into um, your bio as well as the roadmap for today's podcast. I want to kind of give everyone a quick heads up. This is going to follow the same trajectory as all of the podcasts on this series. First, we're going to look at Brianna's academic background and early professional life. And then we're going to turn towards items of unpacking Karetsu Forum, um, namely like the logistics of who, what, when, where, why, and how. And then we'll get into more of the specific areas of the ethos of the company, the philosophical structure, populations and specializations that they service, things of that nature. Then we'll turn towards goals that Brianna has for the next three to five years, um, in both her company and perhaps her personal endeavors. And then we'll wrap everything up with advice that she has for those of you looking to emulate some of what she's done with her career thus far or get involved with her on a current basis. Um, a quick bio on, let's start with the Karetsu Forum um, so that everyone knows what we're talking about and then I'll launch into Brianna's bio, um, bio as well. Uh, Kiretsu founded in 2000. Kiretsu Forum is the world's largest angel investor network with over 2,500 accredited investors members throughout over 50 chapters on three continents. Kiretsu Forum members collaborate in the due diligence of presenting companies, but make individual investment decisions with 750 million invested in over 1,000 companies to date, 300 million in the Northwest, in technology, consumer products, life sciences, real estate, and other high growth segments. So a quick bio on um, Brianna now that we've looked at Karetsu Forum. Brianna currently leads as president in the Northwest region of Karetsu Forum Angel Investing Community, the largest, most active venture investor globally, comprising over 50 chapters with over 2,500 active members investing over 75 million annually into over 180 companies. Brianna has been an active leader and angel investor with um, Karetsu Forum since its launch in Seattle in 2005 and supporting its growth to become the largest and most active group globally. 
She has proven specifically adept at screening companies for angel investment, coaching companies on presentation and investor relations, sales strategy execution, relationship management, and leading due diligence teams. Brianna has established a reputation for achievement in all phases of the Karetsu process, risk management, market anticipation and response, regional and national business development, organizational development, angel investing, and overall enterprise management. So this is um, exciting. Um, Brianna, I have to say that we've had a lot of audience members write in and really want to talk to you know the expertise and powers that be with um, investment firms and people who work with investors and things of that nature. But before we drop into Kuretsu Forum, uh, I kind of want to unpack your academic background and early professional life so that we get to know you as um, the young star that you were. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you for that. Uh, lovely introduction. Um, so it's interesting. Um, I don't have a degree in finance or business. Uh, I actually got my degree in history and political science uh, from the University of Washington. Uh, I was going there, uh, attending the UW uh, during the late 90s. It was kind of during this big, you know, dot-com boom. Um, and there was all this funding of companies and things going on. And I happened to make uh, good friends with an individual um, who is now my husband today. Uh, but he got bit by this bug and kind of brought me along uh, to different events and things to gain some interest and expertise uh, in investing and what was going on. So I, I got some access in the very early days over 20 years ago, um, mm -hmm. with investing, with the lack of due diligence, with a lot of people losing money. And then really the dot bomb that occurred in, uh, 2000 and the market cycles that went from there. Um, we were made friends for a long time. And so he, he got into this business and started throwing events and things. And I would just attend haphazardly, um, to support him and whatnot, I began uh, a career in real estate. And I didn't think much about it at the time, but I worked with executive relocation with Microsoft. So I was actually working with all their aqua hires. So hmm. even though I wasn't directly working uh, in investing with startup companies, I was still working with successful CEOs uh, that had just gotten bought by Microsoft and were relocating here to the Seattle area and helping them find homes. Uh, so I did very well. Uh, in that career, uh, was in real estate for about eight years. Um, but in 2005, my my then fiance uh, decided to launch the Koretsu Forum here. And so, as a supportive um, partner, you know, I came to the to the first event uh, they did, and I would come to the events to support him uh, in what he was doing. And it was interesting. I was getting bit by this entrepreneurial bug as well. And even though I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur, and at that time, I don't think entrepreneurship was really well known uh, by a lot of individuals as it is today with like Shark Tank and other things. Like people know when you say entrepreneur, what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the early 2000s, I don't think that was necessarily the case so much. There was a little bit more nuanced and it was this this other type of trajectory that people were on that um, wasn't necessarily talked about uh, quite as much unless you ran in those circles. Um, so, but my dad, you know, ran his own business and I watched him do that. And then I was running my own real estate business. I was actually quite entrepreneurial, even though I didn't see myself that way. Wow. 
And I sat at this table for about a year with a bunch of men. I was 26. And I would write down questions like, you know, what do you do? How do you make money? What's your business model? And I would think to myself, well, I don't have a degree in business or finance. I clearly have no rights to sit at this table and I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. Um, And then I'd listen to all these men ask the same questions again and again and again and again. And I finally, after about a year, raised my hand, asked a question and had one of our original charter members look at me and be like, that was a really good question. And that was all I needed to really reinforce that, you know what, I actually do deserve a place at this table. And from there, I never shut up. And it led into right. what it is. Today. Good. Was that so was that at 26 or a year? That after was at 26. Yeah. Excellent. I'm curious. So and for those of you who don't know, UW is um, the colloquialism for University of Washington. When you mentioned that that's where you went yeah. and met your husband. Um, I'm curious with uh, how many people, when you say you were around with a bunch of men at that table, did you find it at all um, uh, intimidating because of it being men or just because of the lack of knowledge in the industry you had? Um, I did not find it intimidating because they were men, Uh, but I did find it intimidating uh, because I was so young and uh, and the lack of knowledge. So I do think the age factor and um, not having a degree in this special space um, was the way I discounted myself um, from what I actually was able to do. And how did you get to that table again? Was it your husband kind of introduce, introducing you to um, Kiretsu like through his forming of the board? Or how was that again that you came to? Well, so, he, so we throw, so Kiretsu Forum um, does 25 events every month. And so we are an investor community and we have 300 investors in our community. And so those early days, we were really growing the community, but as essentially individuals working together to try and make smart investment decisions. And, um, and so he just kept inviting me back and was, and would reinforce like, no, it's good for you to come, like, come be at the table. Like, you know, and he would try to encourage me to do so. And I would say, you know, my self-talk, you know, would tell me otherwise, but it, it wasn't based in any reality. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's interesting when you mentioned the discrepancy of, you know, even defining the word entrepreneur, I think it's still, um, I think it's still a, a highly um, sensitive word. You know, I've spoken to some of what I consider to be our nation's greatest entrepreneurs in the past year, and a lot of them shy away from um, taking that title. Because I think that the brevity behind it or the way that people have defined it even recently, um, for instance, real estate agents like yourself and what you were doing in your early 20s, that to me is one of the ultimate entrepreneurial jobs, you know, and um, developing client relations and all of those um, areas and skills and activities that you engage in. However, they'd probably be the last people to tell you that they're an entrepreneur or that's, you know, one of the last thing, titles that they would take. So it was missed or perhaps undefined back in the aughts, which I agree with, um, and maybe even um, misdefined or mystifying now. Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect. So how long did it take you before you um, kind of pushed off the former career that you had within real estate and fully engaged in Kuretsu Forum? Well, so the nice thing is, is that it was a membership organization. So I was never involved in the day-to-day um, activities, but I would join um, all the member functions and then I would participate on due diligence teams. So uh, the first company I invested in uh, was in 2007 
and uh, that was Theo Chocolate. Um, so that was the first company I ever invested in. We now have uh, 25 companies in our portfolio. Uh, but I, it was when um, I always participated as a member, but when my husband's partner left in 2000, it's 20, so it would be 16. Um, mm. That transition happened a bit abruptly, and I stepped in to help because I knew the business. It's quite nuanced. I knew the members. I could add support. Um, I knew how the events were run. Uh, and so my husband and I, you know, it's fascinating. Our, our relationship has gone through many different cycles from being friends to, to dating, to, you know, getting married, to having kids and now being business partners. So, um, so that was just another evolution, um, in our relationship, uh, that occurred. And so that's been an interesting road as well. Um, but I would say officially in 2016, um, I stepped in to help. Uh, and then in the following year, uh, I transitioned into the president role. Okay. And can, let's get into kind of the, some of the nuts and bolts, uh, brick and mortar, if you will, of um, Kuretsu Forum. Like when was it launched officially and who were the original founders? So the original founder is Randy Williams and it was launched in the Bay Area in 2000. And Kuretsu uh, is a Japanese term meaning family or community. And he, he made his money in commercial real estate and his partner at the time was Japanese. And so that's a lot of where it came from. Okay. But essentially, you know, they all were in this craze of the dot-com boom and no due diligence. And, and then the bust happened and they all lost a bunch of money and, you know, thought to themselves, like, there's got to be a better way to look at these early stage deals and make investments and not lose money. And so from that, um, and over the, this, the last 20 years, uh, really have developed a structured process that the companies are able to move through that is uh, really pushed forward by our members. And uh, so our members have the companies present that they see are the best fit. And then we add support as a facilitator. So I like to think of myself as Switzerland. I both support the entrepreneurs who are coming through to present. I do pitch coaching and help them. Uh, I also uh, support my investors with education uh, and different resources. Uh, I just came from a term sheet committee meeting um, where we're really looking to define guidelines on deal terms and what makes a good term sheet uh, for companies that are coming through and making sure that there's a good balance between the investors and the entrepreneurs. Okay. And so the structure of the company, is it pretty much members as far as the investors and then um, I want to say administration or something that you would fall into as the president or some type of the um, architectural staff. And then you have um, entrepreneurs on the other end. Is that kind of the structure of how it's set up? Yeah, so I have a full-time staff here um, that each help support um, entrepreneurs um, so and, and the investor members. So I have a full-time entrepreneur director, a full-time due diligence director. I have an events coordinator with the 25 events that we do every month, an administrative assistant, and then we have a chief of staff, and then my husband, Nathan, who's the chairman. So um, a lot of roles. There's a lot of roles, but and but there's also, we're a very small team for the amount that we do. So last August, we had our Angel Capital Expo up here, which we do three events over two days. And we hosted, my small team hosted a thousand people. Um, 
over those three events. Wow. Uh, we had 560 people at our at our forum meeting, and uh, facilitate uh, and generated almost 1,100 signups for interest for the 18 companies that were presenting. You guys have so, it dialed in. That's a we have, we have a very structured process that everything moves through. Um, so the companies that are coming through uh, are a little bit later stage typically. So we look at late seed series A, B, and C. Uh, we also like to think of ourselves as an alternative to VC funding uh, for companies that might not uh, want to go that route and bring on venture capital. Uh, so we will fund later stage deals if it will uh, generate liquidity quicker uh, than some of the earlier deals. Also with our due diligence process, it's a bit more rigorous than other investment groups. Uh, so we need a little bit more meat to chew on. If it's a life science company, I'm looking at non-dilutive funding. I'm looking for R&D uh, being done um, when they're coming to us and, and working towards clinical trials. Um, mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's a lot of where the life science uh, funding comes into play. Uh, and yeah, and so the companies that are coming through, they actually, there's an administrative fee once they go through our pre-screenings up front. Uh, there's no cost to join in with us up front. So we have committees and deal screening. And once the investors invite them in, uh, then both parties are uh, invested in being in that room. The members pay annual investment fees to be there. And uh, and the companies uh, have an, a one-time administrative fee. Uh, and we take no equity. We take um, no warrants. There's we're not a broker dealer. Uh, it's just a flat fee uh, to help cover the costs of the events that we throw. They'll go to four cities in four days, and we'll facilitate them being in front of 200 to 250 investors, and uh, help them raise money. And last year. Uh, we were able to, we were just getting our final numbers in. It looks like about 78 companies, uh, 50, 52 million here in the Northwest uh, with about an 80% funding rate. Last year we did uh, 76 companies, 54 million. It was about a 70% funding rate. So um, not funding is not guaranteed uh, by any means. Uh, investors make decisions on their own accord and we do the best we can to prep them and make sure that they're ready to go. Uh, and it's really up to the CEO and how they follow up. Fundraising's hard, and I usually tell companies, um, your pitch is not to raise money, your pitch is to generate interest. And so our whole funnel and our process is actually meant to develop relationships between the investors and the entrepreneurs because people invest in people they know and trust. Absolutely, and it's the final piece of the vetting process for any investor that I've spoken to. It's this unspoken, um, people call it the gut or something, you know, to yeah. that effect in the end. It always comes down to this kind of personal, je ne sais quoi, you know, moment between investor and um, entrepreneur. I'm curious, between the, um, amongst the, rather, the 1,000 companies to date, you have tech, you've got consumer products, you've got life science, real estate. And when you say um, other high growth segments, is that encompassing another like industry or is it just high growth within those four or five? No, I mean, because there's like there's fintech. So there's been a lot of new emerging um, sectors yeah. that have come out since that was written. So, I mean, like blockchain, fintech, um, clean tech, even though that's still really hard to see a return in, but we're seeing a lot more impact based companies. So there's just, there's other sectors that pop up. Um, as a whole, uh, one thing I find really interesting about our organization is we have a diversification thesis, which is why you see so many sectors 
uh, listed there. So we're sector agnostic, region agnostic in terms of our investing. And because we are a global organization, we can really leverage investors in those different areas where those companies may come from to be those boots on the ground for us, which is why so many you know, really investment groups are localized to their area. So they'll, you know, we, there's a, there's six other investment groups here in town that do early stage investing, uh, but they might do a little bit earlier companies or they only invest in the Pacific Northwest or they don't invest in real estate or uh, pharmaceuticals and so, or they only invest in clean tech. So there's different uh, investment theses across the board um, with the different investment groups. And so it's really important for entrepreneurs, especially as they're thinking about going and raising capital, you know, who are the best groups to target at what time? So it's definitely an ecosystem where different players are working at different stages and it takes all of us uh, players working together to help those companies get to market. Absolutely. And that comes into, you know, there's been a lot of, um, at any entrepreneurial or investment um, forum, you and I met at Women's Venture Summit here in San Diego about six months ago. But um, there's always a lot of conversation about, you know, key pieces that are left out. And um, investors normally do an incredible amount of research and due diligence um, as to who they're going to invest in. And I think that it needs to be pushed um, always um, frequently moving forward. The entrepreneur should do the same. You know, there's the, you need to absolutely vet who you're looking to pitch for investment. You need not take, you know, uh, money from someone who doesn't align up with you and, and your company and what you're pitching and your startup. Um, and likewise, to look at, uh, this is an interesting concept because, you know, you guys are this, this kind of series ABC investing late um, a seed type of thing rather than the initial. And I think that that um, is good to note that it's, it's different investment firms at different times rather than just trying to stay with the key people or forums that you've originally started with. Yeah, I mean, it's, I can't stress this enough. And I mean, a lot of what I, when I'm coaching entrepreneurs, uh, I'm trying to actually talk them out of raising money because there is, there's a lot that comes with raising money and it adds a different dynamic and money is funny and people respond really differently. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really when you're looking at raising capital, not only understanding who the different investment groups are and where you should go at what given time, but I honestly feel like this urgency from entrepreneurs, like I have to get this money in. And so they take money from maybe some bad actors and those bad actors could actually tank your company down the road right. or they could create more work for you that actually pulls you away from, from the work that you need to be doing on your business. And so it's really, really important that the due diligence that the investors are doing, the entrepreneurs should be asking questions like, how many companies have you invested in? You know, how do you work with your companies? What kind of resources can you provide to me? Because that's a lot of what the private investor and individual investor community does is that, you know, we're all serial entrepreneurs and we really look to um, support these companies to go the distance. I mean, this is our money at work. So how can I help you in any way, shape or form? Like always know that I'm here and communicate with me the things that you need. I want you to be successful. Yeah. And that kind of mentorship coming from the money end, I think is, is crucial to have in tandem with other mentorships that young entrepreneurs are getting. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of describe um, even within the other um, chapters of Kuretsu, that you've got, you know, the forum in the Northwest region that you have, is there a differentiation between the, like, the ethos or the philosophical structure of the Northwest as opposed to the other chapters? 
So there are some fundamental things that are the same about each chapter, um, but you but we you could think of it like a franchise in all honesty. So we own the Pacific Northwest region. We also now own uh, and just acquired in Q4 last year, uh, the Rockies region. So we now actually have a huge amount of territory uh, that includes Vancouver, BC, Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. And so we own that and, and how we run that, um, is really up to us. And so uh, each chapter can be run uh, the way it's run, but the, the fundamental process and the funnel and the due diligence handbook and all those items are all the same. I will say, you know, investing as a whole, um, each region culturally has its own thing. I mean, even crossing a bridge between Seattle and Bellevue, like yeah. the dynamic in the rooms are just different. And so raising capital out here in the Northwest is substantially different than like flying to Philadelphia or going to Northern California. Uh, there's just different people in the rooms and different focuses and mindsets. So you're always going to have um, kind of those different players. That said, I mean, I guess the best, the best piece, and I don't ever like to give advice, but it would be a bit, is just to keep your pitch high level when you're going and pitching to these different groups, because once again, the whole goal of your pitch is to generate interest. You demonstrate competency within Q and A. And then, you know, from there you get your interest list and that's then when you get to go dive into the weeds on all the things that your business does and really begin that relationship building. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. And I kind of want to climb into some particulars. I want to approach this from two different angles. And I do want to get, I know that you just said the advice is not your, your fun forte. However, I do want to get your advice on some um, advice that you would have with people who are looking to get into investment, um, you know, and, and become an investor on different levels, as well as entrepreneurs who are seeking out investment on just like some very surface points. And the first one is if someone's interested and you and I have had, um, off the record um, conversations about having um, uh, what, how people get originally involved in investing. You yourself at 26, you know, just started sitting in and having these conversations, but um, female um, investors, you know, VCs, um, all the way angels are a little bit more few and far between. So can you explain to people if they're interested in getting into investment, some pieces of advice that you would suggest to kind of get on board with that? Yeah, so I mean, there is research out there that you can read. Uh, Willamette University, actually, um, Robert Wiltbank has written a couple of white papers on angel investing that's really valuable. And there's not a lot of data and research actually on angel investing. So it's great that you can find, you know, these different resources to really educate yourself. Um, I do recommend um, if you're trying to get into it for the first time, uh, going and doing some due diligence around different organizations that are in your area and really trying to go at it by like a group mentality. Um, and, and sitting and listening. So usually when I have someone new to investing who's joining our organization, I recommend to them that they should sit and listen in the room for six months they should actually not write a check at all. Um, and they should, you know, 
begin to build relationships with the other uh, investors in the community and learn from them, ask them about their mistakes, ask them about the things that, you know, they should look out for as they do that. You know, one thing about Koretsu Forum that I just, I really love is we bring this really structured process with a full-time staff to really support our investor members. And for $3,000 a year, um, you can pay that membership fee and you can get all these resources. And hopefully that $3,000 will save you from losing 25, 50 or hundred grand investing in a deal you know, by having a structured process that's moving through. So typically the key factors of why people don't invest is lack of quality deal flow. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies out there realizing that most of them are going to fail. And so how do you actually, you know, sift through the deals to get the best of the best deals? Uh, due diligence uh, is really difficult and a lot of people don't understand where to start. And so we have a very structured process that we're able to help combat that. Um, and really dig in. And some people like to sit and write on the coattails of due diligence. Some people like to dive in and be active. I say, if you're thinking about investing in something, dig in and get your hands dirty because this is your investment and you need to get to know what's going on with it inside and out. And nothing's fully baked. So, you know, really looking at what the good points are and what the things that are moving forward in a positive traction standpoint, but boy, what, what are those gaping holes that need to be filled? Where are those trouble spots? Do they need to hire another staff member? Maybe the CEO right now is really great, but they don't have the skill set to take it to the next stage. How coachable are they? Are they willing to step down? Are they willing to move into a different C position and bring on a new CEO to help take the company the distance? These are all things that, you know, just come from over time and, honestly losing money um, that I've learned along the way. I do think um, society as a whole for women has put us in this place where we, we really have a fear of failure. You know, um, the judgment that can come from our own internal self-talk or um, just how we're viewed out in the world. And so a lot of times we'll give money to, to causes uh, but we won't actually invest in money and in, in any, in any sort of company because of the risk profile associated with that. We'd rather have a man who's working wall street, go ahead and invest our money into the public markets. So it's really about taking financial control and really digging in on what's going on, um, and empowering yourself as a woman that way. But I would love to see more women investors, but there's not enough angel investors either. So about 3% of the of people ability that have the ability to invest that meet the accreditation status, which is 250,000 as an individual or 300,000 as a couple or a million in assets. Um, only 3% of those individuals across our nation actually invest in early stage companies. Yeah, and, and that's tragic. I mean, we've talked, uh, you and I talked at the Venture Summit. I spoke with um, several of our colleagues there about the life cycle, I, the ideal life cycle of the investor you know, starts off as this entrepreneur, becomes seasoned and successful, and eventually turns around, at least this is one of the, the um, archetypes, if you will, of an investor, turns around and invests in um, other female or non-binary or female identified companies to kind of raise some of these numbers that are just tragic, you know, that we've, um, we've all looked at with um, within the investment community as well as entrepreneurship. And I think it, it requires that. It's an interesting um, concept that you bring up because I do think that it fits very well with the 
at least the um, population that I've met with, you know, entrepreneurs and wildly successful experts all the way down to working out of their folks' garage, there is a moment of um, entrepreneurs and um, seasoned CTOs, CEOs alike to have this hesitancy towards um, investment, but all of them that I've interviewed give. You know, they'll all contribute to um, humanitarian causes, to any charity that you can name, but the idea of, you know, investing even, you know, um, a, a token or a trivial amount between, let's say, three to $50,000 would be pretty terrifying, you know, and I think a lot of them feel unequipped to do that, but we give that money very, very quickly to organizations. And so it's, it's interesting because when you talk about return and growing your capital and then being able to, not that we shouldn't give to charities, but being able to give to charities as well as invest your money in your um, economy, I think that there is a, a large dialogue to be had there that does play into our role in women and, and what we've had in not just the business arena, but more specifically the investment arena, you know? Yeah, I couldn't, yeah, I just... It's so true. Um, the one thing, the one point I would really like to bring up was a few years ago, someone looked at me and they go, what makes Coca-Cola different than um, a foundation or a nonprofit? And I mean, it was just, it was such an odd question. I like looked at them and I was like, I don't know, like one's a beverage company and you know, one's a non a nonprofit. Like, I don't know, what do you, what do you want from me? And they go, Coca-Cola had the ability to scale. And nonprofits typically don't. Right. And so, and foundations are actually set to end at some point. There's usually an end point that comes to a foundation. Mm -hmm. So especially, you know, as we face different crises in the world, there are companies out there that are for profit that are looking to solve real world problems that could make the world a better place that you could give your money to. And they can scale and grow that. And they can actually reach more people than donating to a nonprofit could potentially. Yeah. And you could make a return on your investment. If the company ends up failing, then you still get your tax write off. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't come immediately. So, I mean, the end game is still the same, but you know, that scale is really the difference between the for-profit and the nonprofit and how far you could actually stretch your dollar, which I don't think is also talked about enough. Yeah. And I think that, you know, men have done a great job at educating the young. You know, there's this um, young mentorship, apprenticeship, whatever model as young boys are coming up. I mean, most of my colleagues at the age of 25 knew more about investment than I did at 35. You know, and it's because they're, they're their friends, their fathers, their uncles, they were all talking about it with them when they were young. It was just being handed down as a piece of information. And so yeah. I think the more that we can do that as women um, is crucial as well, you know, to get our daughters read in on this investment aspect. Well, and you know, we're really smart. And even if women don't think of themselves as investors, you know what, they understand market trends. Mm -hmm. They understand what sells and what doesn't. We do most of the consuming and we're more than half the world. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of us. For most of that consumption, you know, the huh? women I said we're paying a higher price for that consumption than the female tax. Yes. You know, our clothing is more expensive. Our products are more expensive. So having a, a bigger seat at the table seems only just. Yes. In deciding that. I'm wondering now, flipping the coin to the other side and looking at yep. entrepreneurs, you've, yep. you've sat down with so many over the past decade. And I'm wondering um, 
how, so here's my deal. I've sat down, I've hung out much like yourself since the aught, since the rise and fall of, you know, the Silicon Valley empire and the rebuild. Um, <laughs> and um, I'll be here for the next 40 of them as well. But I'm curious. So part of my shtick is I love the elevator pitch. I love the pitch deck. I love that we're trying to get people sharp and on it and clear and concise and laser focused on their point. But there is, we talk about, you know, um, due diligence and, and that final piece of really investing in someone. And there's a piece of um, authenticity that sometimes gets lost when that elevator pitch and everything is hit so hard, you know, with um, knowing everything backwards and forwards. And I, I came upon this last summer in Europe when I was in Sweden and I was listening to a bunch of entrepreneurs in Europe, which I mean, the differences are much more than what I'll just lay out here. But there was a, a moment of pause. There was like a, a the relationship between the information they were conveying and myself was like the difference of Meryl Streep versus, you know, some C-list actor acting out the same role. It was just, it was more authentic. It felt more relatable. And so what I'm curious about is, first of all, I want to know what your most common advice is to entrepreneurs that you see that you think have a good go, but they're doing something wrong. So you think that they're doing something, they're, the company's a good idea, but you're like, you need to change this. What is the most common piece of advice? Oh. It's usually their market and their go-to-market. So, um, I mean, I would say, first off, most things I tell entrepreneurs is don't raise money, especially if they're early on. Um, bootstrap, apply for grants, look for other sources of capital don't sell off your company just because shark tank think makes it makes it cool. Uh, doesn't mean, uh, it's the thing you should do. Yeah. Um, the second thing is market and really that feeds into go to market strategy. Um, and honestly building backwards, maybe say building, maybe say building backwards. Um, Hmm. If you're going to go raise capital from investors, you have to think about the fact that this is not charity. I am not giving you money as an investor because I just like your cause. I'm giving you money as an investor because I want to make money. I want to support innovation. I want to drive innovation. But at the end of the day, I want to see a return on my capital. Um, I, I'm not giving you my money to piss it away and, and drive the company into the ground. And so any company that should be thinking about going and raising capital should build from the end result. So whatever that end result is, if it's going to be M&A and that's the best route for them possible, great. Have that dialed in. Who are your desired acquirers? What are the current, um, what current companies have been acquired at that? Uh, and what kind of returns are, are people seeing um, if that information is published? And then really build from the, the most people that you could hit in the market all the way down to the very beginning stages. And then you have your roadmap out in front of you. I think a lot of the time what happens with entrepreneurs is they go to school, they study entrepreneurship, or they want to start this business. And everybody's really good about teaching on how to build a business plan, how to turn an idea into something, but no one teaches on how to exit. And um, that return of capital is critically important because it's an ecosystem and the ecosystem yeah. moves by capital in, capital out. And if, that ca if you're just sucking money out of the ecosystem and not generating returns to investors, then you're doing a detriment 
to the ecosystem. So I think entrepreneurs, and I think it falls under more naivete than, than it does under maliciousness, but I don't think that they, they build with that end in mind. Like if they're going to go IPO, great. If you want to go IPO, who on your team has done an IPO? Because they're highly complicated. And if you are building for IPO, you best better be thinking about that from the very moment you start your business, because every single, every single rent, uh, that you sign any, any sort of documentation that you have that starts the very, very beginning stages of your business has to be documented, um, yeah. to go IPO because yeah, right. they're going to they're gonna filter through all of that. And if you don't have that stuff ready to go when it's time to exit, it's going to, it's going to screw up your exit window and you might end up getting less of a return than you could have otherwise, or it might end up killing the deal altogether. But, um, into market and how that feeds in, my biggest stickler when I'm coaching a company and working through their deck is the market. Um, if they tell me, so I was coaching a company earlier today, they have a market that could be 4.2 billion, but really it's 2 billion. You know, it's just, that's about their market size is 2 billion. I'm like, okay, great. Well, what's your target market? Like, where do you start? And if they're everything to everybody all to all at once, right out the gate, I will automatically dismiss them because you have to have a focus in how you get to market, yeah. whether it's a region, whether it's a specific demographic. And then I usually tell companies, you know, the financial projections, like if you start building out your financial projections from your market and what you think it can be, and your financial projections seem pretty flat, like they don't have that hockey stick growth then in all honesty, you probably shouldn't be raising capital from investors and maybe considering looking at some debt financing or maybe taking a loan. Um, you might just have a small business that you're going to run. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's lots of different types of businesses that can be started. Not all of them are going to be venture-backed businesses. So um, yeah. you know, if you do have that hockey stick growth, great, then I understand in your financial projections from your target market, I can ask you anywhere in those five-year projections who the market is, who have you penetrated at that time, how you've expanded, and you know exactly how you got to those numbers from your market. And so we always laugh about the hockey stick being in there because they're just projections and that's what they are, but they should be coming from some hard evidence and research that you've done in the market and what actually exists and how you're going to take your product there whether yeah. that be B2B or B2C. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a key point too, um, especially with the IPO and, and realizing that from the beginning, I think that's a very solid piece of advice. Speaking of projections and goal making um, and, and looking in the future, what do um, you all over at the Northwest um, region and, and Karetsu Forum have planned for your next three to five years? What are you guys looking at? I mean, you just, I think you just introduced the Rockies idea. Was that a new? Well, we just bought the Rockies region. So, um, so we're launching and growing out that region. So in the next uh, year to 18 months is going to be a big focus uh, there. So we have 300 investors here in the Pacific Northwest that span Vancouver, BC, down to uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, we just launched Denver, Boulder, uh, 
in uh, October, November last year are in, in the early stages of growing um, that part of the ecosystem and really building relationships with the other players there too, uh, because we're all different and we all fund different stages. So how do we, um, you know, help um, the ecosystem in that area, which is really blossoming. Um, Denver is just a hot market right now. And a lot of people from the Valley are actually moving to Denver and commuting to the Bay Area. So it's been kind of funny to just see this different yeah. uh, transition going on. Um, so that's really going to be our big focus uh, from Denver Boulder. We would really like to then expand into Salt Lake City and uh, and then into uh, New Mexico. So um, and maybe Albuquerque. So um, looking at those different regions in the next 18 months. Uh, I would say we are on our capital side, which is what my husband runs, it's our funds. Um, we're looking at a different type of partner play. Uh, we're, we're, trying to work, we're trying to work smarter and less hard. Um, doing 25 events every month is a lot of hard work. I don't think people appreciate how hard it is and the tremendous amount of energy it is to get in front of 200, get, one, get 200 to 250 people to turn out every single month mm -hmm. and put on high quality events um, between due diligence training, our committee meetings, our deal screenings, our academies, um, and really provide that support to our members. We are a very small team um, doing all of this. So uh, we're looking at trying to brand into second mar secondary markets uh, with our funds. Um, and be able to provide really quality deal flow to maybe some individuals that might be there, uh, but it's not enough. It's not enough people there to be able to actually put on a meeting um, and have entrepreneurs travel there. So um, also, you know, one new thing that we've just started doing, um, and this is new this year, is virtualizing our team. So understanding that the Seattle, and maybe you've seen this, you know, in the Silicon Valley and in the in uh, San Diego. Uh, but not everybody that is super high qualified to work in our in our company is in within driving distance of East Lake in Seattle. Sure. And so really looking at trying to have um, hiring more people who are just really excited about working in this space, supporting the growth of entrepreneurship and funding companies uh, and opening up our um, applicant pool to the entire United States and really virtualizing um, what we're doing uh, there. So that's been a big shift for us um, as well. Um, so I would say- I think it's the regions, especially that you're going into, you know, I have um, a lot of um, history with a, a few of them in the Rockies and they're calling Salt Lake City, Silicon Slopes, you know, yeah. the tech talent from, and that you have, you have both. You have incredible wealth and you also have an, an, a huge amount of startups. And yep. Living is cheaper, so it's exciting. I mean, these these new acquisition areas and going on a global scale for your clientele. I mean, or at least a United States scale. That's it. Sounds like it's going to be a busy three years. It's it is going to be very busy. Um, but the one thing that just is so exciting and is really our gasoline and our tanks that keeps us going is yes, we get to fund this innovation, and yes, we have the opportunity uh, to generate returns on our capital with it. But I mean, I have three young kids at home that are 11, nine and five. And you know, what is this world going to look like for them? And I mean, every day that I get up, you know, and I'm funding innovation, I'm helping to make the world a better place for them yeah. and really helping to bring new technologies to market 
um, that wouldn't otherwise be there and really believing in people uh, to be able to do that. Absolutely. I completely concur. And on that very positive note, looking forward to the future, we are out of time. We're going to wrap up. Um, for, for everyone listening, you can contact uh, Brianna McDonald uh, via their website, www.k4northwest.com. And um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for taking, I know you're busy, three kids, um, 52 different positions at um, Karetsu Forum. And I want to say thank you so much for, um, for taking the time, Brianna, today and, and speaking with us. Yeah, thank you for having me and letting me share a little bit. Absolutely. It was awesome. I hope to circle back around um, finding what you guys are doing and the new uh, the new territory acquisitions. I'll try and convince you, persuade you in a year or two to um, talk with us again and find out where you're at. I would be happy to do so. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you for your time. And until we chat again, remember to always bet on yourself. Sunshine.